I invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word tonight to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. I'm actually going to read from Psalm 8 here in a moment, uh, but we will spend our time in Genesis 1 and 2. I'm going to offer uh, some thoughts on the image of God in our contemporary cultural confusion. I start out in Psalm 8 for my reading because Psalm 8 is a distillation of the creation account and talks about the glory of man in God's created order. In fact, Psalm 8 refers to the the way the entire Bible is structured in terms of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation or consummation. And it's a powerful testimony to what God has done and man's place in the world that God has made. I want to invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! You have set Your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, You have established strength because of Your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all beasts of the field and birds of the heavens and fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we bow tonight. And we pray that as we look into Your Word and we see the revelation of Yourself in the very beginning as the Creator King of the entire cosmos, that we would bow before the Word of the King. Lord, I pray tonight that we would have You shape us so we would think about the created order and particularly the place of human beings in the created order, in light of Your Word. Lord, You are the One who is the Creator. You are the One who is the Redeemer. You are the Sovereign over all. Lord, help us to understand better tonight what it means to say that people are created in the image of You, O God. And all that means for the way we order our lives. We pray it in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. There are all kinds of challenges that we face today. Many of those challenges seem to us um, related to the cultural confusion and chaos around us, particularly in relation to issues of marriage and sexuality. Uh, They seem to be new challenges. We face a culture that is endorsing 
uh, same-sex marriage, embracing homosexuality and lesbianism and transgenderism and uh, land that uh, abortion is rampant. And, and there's a sense in which within us, this all seems so new, that we are facing challenges that no one else has ever faced. And there's certainly a sense in which the way some of these challenges are being uh, presenting themselves does have a newness to it, but not at the core of the issues themselves. Uh, my friend, uh, Dr. Russell Moore, uh, used to teach ethics at Southern Seminary before he went to the Ethics and Religious Liberty Com- Commission. And he was famous in his ethics class for uh, having a final exam that comes up with some scenario uh, that seems so bizarrely outlandish and He's trying to challenge them to apply the sort of way they've, they've learned how to think out uh, what the Scripture says and think out the Gospel in application to these problems. And so I remember years ago, about uh, 12, 13 years ago, he's, uh, one of his ethics finals, there, there was the, the famous jo- Joan or John final exam. And the final exam was that uh, there is somebody who's come to you who's professed faith in Christ, and, and they've come to you for baptism. And um, their name is Joan, and yet they tell you before the baptism that they were not born at Joan, they were born John. And so the final exam is, where do you go from there? Do you baptize them as Joan, or do you baptize them as John, and Why? And that seemed so outlandish at the time, and yet it was just a few years where that was a fairly commonplace problem that many of my friends in ministry have dealt with specifically. So there's a sense in which there's a newness to that. The way the the, the rampant sort of slide and acceptance of certain things does have a newness to it. But... One thing that's very important for us to remember is that these challenges all go back to the beginning. These challenges should not um, surprise us at all. These challenges are all before us in the very beginning of the Bible and the fall into sin. It makes all the sense in the world that the corruption after the fall takes aim at those things which are most foundational. Those things which God framed in the very beginning as being of vital importance. You know, when we think about the the issues surrounding us, um, it's one thing to have a position on issues that you don't actually face in your life and family. But these kinds of issues we're talking about uh, are going to be issues that all of us face in a variety of ways. In fact, many within our own congregation have faced issues related to family members who have said they are transgender or same-sex relationships. And um, I, I've, I've noticed in those situations that when it becomes personal, when it becomes costly... It's different. 
And we don't have to look very far. We have the rampant divorce culture in our churches that churches largely ignore. At one time they did not. They started ignoring it when so many people in their own congregations uh, were getting divorced and so it became a look the other way. Well, that's what's easy to do on these issues. I've, I've counseled people in our congregation dealing with transgender relatives. I've counseled people with uh, relatives who uh, uh, are two women getting married now that it's culturally, legally uh, recognized as marriage, though it's not. And when we face these things, we've got to avoid two mistakes. And there are two mistakes that are very easy to fall into. One of those mistakes is we act as though that, that these are issues that really we don't have any real answer to. We almost wave a white flag and we make it us and them and we act as though that the Bible doesn't give us answers to these complex uh, problems related to gender identity, related to the definition of marriage. And, and we just say, listen, uh, there's no way to help those people. They're, they're too far gone. Let's just insulate ourselves from them. And let's just keep ourselves pure. And yet that's far from a biblical response. In fact, it is unfaithful to the Word of God. And then the other response where uh, when you say it, your tendency is to say, well, I would never do that. And yet, and that's just simply to give in to capitulate, to start looking the other way, to stop speaking the truth on uh, issues because it is costly and it's easier to fit into the cultural context if you just don't make those things the issues. I can't tell you how many folks I've talked to, pastor churches, and uh, they're trying to talk themselves into making same-sex marriage at least something they don't make an issue about. They're trying to talk themselves into downplaying these issues and not focusing on them and saying, you know, you, we have people who are gluttons. Gluttony is a sin and we don't pick on them. So we can say this issue related to same-sex marriage or transgenderism or these things. We can say it's a sin. We just don't talk about it and focus on it. And yet all of that is just simply a way of not facing the consequences of the truth that we are called to stand for. Sentimentalism is wanting convictions that you don't have to pay a price for. The idea that we can just walk away from these issues when it is costly is not an issue far into the Bible, and the Bible doesn't speak kindly about a people who would name His name and do that sort of thing. There is no way out for us if we are going to be a people who are committed to the Word and committed to the Gospel. What we have to do is to understand these things in light of our Bible, but our biblical response to it does more than say what is right and wrong. It tells us how to proceed as the people of God. And so that's what I want to talk to you a bit about tonight. What's at stake with these issues is nothing less than God's name, God's Word, God's rule in God's world. Now, I, I want that to be very clear tonight because 
we cannot minimize these things because that's what's at stake. The name of God, what God has said, the character of God, the, the world that God has made. And, and, and I want to start out with this. And that is the apex of God's creation is gendered image bearers. The apex of God's creation is the creation of man and woman in the image of God. Now, now beyond that, there is the creation of Sabbath rest, which is ultimate, but Sabbath rest is created for the people of God, and one day we will be in eternal rest. But when we talk about the, the things that God created, the apex of His creative order and design are those that were differentiated because they are uniquely, like nothing else in the created order, created in His very image. When we look at Genesis 1, we see that uh, the sovereign creator king of the cosmos speaks, and we see the authority of His Word. Now, when we go to, our, our, uh, go to the New Testament, we see that Jesus Himself was here at the created order, and all things were created by Him, through Him, and for Him. We see that uh, Jesus is the firstborn of creation, that He is the sovereign one, and that's going to shape our thoughts because we see not only the creation, but we see the solution to the fall into sin. Now, the Bible tells the story about God and God's rule in God's place, the world that He created among God's people, and all of that is here in the beginning of our Bibles as we see the very first verse, in the beginning, God created the word that is uniquely used of God, bara, the Hebrew word, meaning out of nothing, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it keeps telling us, God said, God said, God said, and it was good, it was good, it was good. But all of this moves toward what we find beginning in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Now before we look at that, let me point something out though. And that is that it, God's work of, at creation, if we took the time to, to work out that, work out all of this, we would see that, that God in the beginning created complementary pairs in His created order. And, and it is that complementary relationship is the way the world works. And all of the things that we see that God created show up again at the end of the Bible uh, as the kingdom is consummated. So when we're talking about these complementary relationships according to God's design, we aren't talking about something that is simply a few proof texts at places in the Bible. We're talking about how God created the world and how God will consummate the age that we're now in. So we're talking about something that affects the purposes of God in total. We can shape out these complementary pairs and the way they show up in the consummation of the kingdom if we spent time in the last two chapters of the Bible in Revelation. But let me just note here, there is heaven and earth. How does that show up at the end? It's a new heavens and new earth. Now, I'm not going to work you through all that, but I want you to see this is a framing thing in the Bible. Now, remember that, that when you have that framing thing, everything in between is about the frame. 
right? Nothing is excluded from it. There's heaven and earth, sea and land, fish and birds, day and night, light and darkness, sun and moon, morning and evening, and there's male and female. Now, you have an understanding even personally of the way the the sort of complementary contrast works. I, I am reading these words from this book, uh, my copy of the Bible, and the reason I can read the words is because it's not all white or it's not all black. There are black words on a white page. It is the relationship between the black words on the white page that makes it usable for me. It's the contrast between the two that complements one another that makes it work. It's not just that way about reading words on a page. It's that way in the world that God has made. Look with me at Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now the us there is plural. Um, It doesn't say how many, but we know the rest of our Bibles. A lot of biblical scholars call this a plural of majesty, showing the plurality of the Godhead, what we would refer to as the triune God. God lives in community, and so God makes community as a reflection of Himself. But at this point, we get to to God making man, or it's the the broadest word for mankind. Mankind includes man and woman. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." Now, understand what's going on here. Mankind is being distinguished from the rest of the created order and from the rest of the created beings. Man has a relationship of dominion over the other created beings. Man is to rule the world under the authority of God, and so man is to exercise his dominion in a way that honors the God who made the world. And as we're going to see, a part of that is looking around as the world grows and What helps people flourish? What is for the common good of the community in the way we exercise that dominion? But here we want to note that there is a distinguishing fact between human beings, mankind, man and woman, and the rest of the created order that we must fundamentally recognize. So the way the story is being told... Human beings, male and female, are at the apex of God's creative design. That's the way He's telling the story. That's the reason they come at the end. That's the reason they're given dominion over the rest. It's the apex of what God is doing in His creative work. And the distinguishing factor is this issue of image-bearing. Look with me at verse 27. So God created man... Again, the broad term, mankind, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, 
male and female, he created them. Now, it's poetic language here to highlight this image-bearing function. And we talk about being created in the image of God a lot, but we don't really work it out very much. So, what does that mean? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Uh, The word there for image is a word that means to chisel out. It's a word used for producing statues. Let's say we are chiseling out a statue to represent a person, and that is a likeness to that person. This is a representation of that person. If you know what that person looks like, you look at the statue and you think about that person. Okay, that's the word. But we not only have statues or images, now we have pictures, photographs, things like that. So an image is and is not what it resembles. Now that's important because that's what's going on here. So like nothing else in the created order, man is the image of God. But man is not God. I have a picture of my daughters in my office. That is my daughters, in a sense. It's my daughters and not your daughters. It is my daughters, but it's not my daughters. It's an image, a representation of my daughters. We are the representative in God's creative design of Himself. Meaning there are ways in which we can emulate what God has done in the world that nothing else that God made can emulate God in that way. We can represent Him, but we are not Him. Uniquely, we are God's representatives in the world. An image is and is not what it resembles. Man is what he is, but man is also an image of God. God speaks, creates, interacts, reasons, contemplates, and judges. And like God, man can speak, create, interact, reason, contemplate, and judge. But man cannot speak, create, interact, reason, contemplate, and judge like God because man is not God. But man can reflect God in those ways in a way that nothing else in the creative order can. Okay? Now, that's quite a bit more about the image than we normally spend our time thinking about, but it's important for us to get that settled in our mind. Now, as God creates mankind in His image to represent Him in the world uniquely, there is something that God does with His creation of mankind that is very striking. And that is this, male and female, He created them. Now, we could read that another way. Male sex... And female sex, He created them. Male gender and female gender, He created them. 
Now, it's very popular in academic circles today to separate gender and sex, but it's just sort of sophistry. There's no reason to do that. Uh, The idea in academic circles is that sex is what you are biologically and gender is what you are in your mind. But there is nothing, not only not in the Bible, but in biological science that would substantiate that whatsoever. When you say that somebody, when you talk about somebody's sex, you're saying their gendered identity. We make a mistake when we talk about having sex. Sex is not something you have. Sex is something you are. Sexual intercourse is possible because you are of the male sex and female sex. And so there is a design that works for sexual intercourse. So sex is what you are as a gendered image bearer. So God, in creating mankind in His own image, says that to fully image Him, you have to have male and female. You have to have the male sex and the female sex. In other words, God cannot be rightly imaged with just simply one gender. For God to be rightly imaged in the totality of the way we are to image Him, He's given the good gift of male and female, the complementary relationship, just like the other complementary relationships. That is what God is doing in the world. And so your gendered identity is one of the foundational ways you submit to and obey God. And so as the people of God, we teach our children to embrace God's design in their life and delight in it. And it is one of the cruelest things you could ever imagine to encourage confusion about gendered identity because it is a foundational issue. Confusion about gendered identity is confusion about God. Now, we know that because God is tying male and female to the imaging of Him in the world. God made them, male and female, in God's image and according to His likeness. Now, this is the intention of God. It's the design of God. This fits with the whole of the biblical witness. For God to be imaged completely, there has to be the embracing of these realities, not the rejection of them. Man is God's image bearer. He's imaged by male and female and the complementary relationship between the two. The way we come to faith is by submitting to God. Saying, God is truth, I am not. God knows perfectly, I do not. 
One of the first thing God tells us about his image bearers is that he made them male and female. So at a very basic level of submitting to God is accepting his intention with your gendered identity. Now, it's not very popular today to think about yourself in terms of your gendered identity. Even in church circles, it's sort of everybody's androgynous people. We just talk about people. But you should not do that. You should think about what it means to serve God as a man and what it means to serve God as a woman and the embracing of that in your lives. It's one of the reasons why I often uh, pray with my daughters. I say, God, I, I, I praise God. You that you gave these girls who will become women to this home. I thank you for their femininity and I pray that they would surrender their femininity to you. That they would be girls who serve you with their lives. And so with my boys, I thank you that you put these, these, these boys who will become men in my home and I pray, Lord, that all of their testosterone would be surrendered under your lordship. That, that all of the sense of what makes them men would be given over to you. We are to think about ourselves in terms of our gendered identity and the complementary re- reality of that, meaning there is no hierarchy of importance. It's a complementary way that we image God. There is... Difference of design, which means difference of roles, but there is equality in what it means to be an image bearer in the sight of God. So the first category, the apex of God's creation is gendered image bearers. Not just humanity, not just people, but gendered image bearers. Secondly, The foundational means of taking dominion is the marriage of a man and a woman. Now, if you'll flip over to Genesis 2.18. In Genesis 2.18, it says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good. By the way, that's the first not good. It is not good that the man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. And so in Genesis 2, we have a retelling of the, uh, the creation account, and we have more detail with what is going on here. In God's creation, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Then it talks about the fact He created uh, man and woman in His own image. It says it was very good. And now we turn to Genesis 2, and we see that God created man, but had not yet created woman originally. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I will make him a a complement fit for him. Now that's important to note right there because there is... um, there's a tendency to, with, with, with people who want to corrupt these facts to say the, the issue there is just loneliness. 
But no, we've already seen that the aloneness is tied to gendered identity in chapter 1, and now he's working that out and explaining it in chapter 2. It's not just the issue of loneliness, it's a specific loneliness that is met by the way two gendered image bearers of the opposite sex come together and image God uniquely in an intimate relationship called marriage. The complement was not yet created, the helper, the partner, uh, the community of God The intimacy of the Godhead was not yet reflected in the creation of man alone. So the Trinity is not adequately reflected. So God is going to do something to meet that need and give a complementary pair. Verse 19 continues. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So God allows man to do the naming here. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Meaning there is no compliment for him. Verse 21. So the... So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, by the way, this is the first recorded words of man, and it is a poem about a wife. So when the first time man speaks, he declares in poetic language the glory of what it means to have a compliment. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, an appropriate compliment. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And in the Hebrew here, there's a play on words. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. All of this language is is making much, even in the poetry of the complementary reality. Woman taken out of man. And by the way, if we work this out, uh, we see that man was made from the earth. Man was brought to the earth. Man was charged to work the earth. Woman was made from man. Woman was brought to the man. Woman was charged to be man's helper. You, 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 You see that that pairing there? Man was made from the earth, woman was made from man, man was brought to the earth, woman was brought to man, man was charged to work the earth, woman was charged to be man's helper in working the earth, taking dominion to the glory of God. So so the work of dominion in the world, ruling the world under the authority of God, is a role for man and woman, all of God's image bearers, and uniquely that work goes forward through God's design of putting gendered image bearers together in intimate relationships called marriage. Look at verse 24. Here's the plan. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. There's no guilt in their nakedness here. There's no shame in their nakedness. This is what God had designed, and God had brought them together. This was His plan. Marriage is different that comes together in unity. Man can name what God has done, but man cannot coerce God into naming what He has done. In other words, man can't change the design of God and call on God to bless it, to name it. That's not the way it works. This is what God has done. A man for a woman. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Ish and Isha. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That's covenant language. Deuteronomy uh, uh, chapter 10, verse, 30, uh, verse 20, that language is used for the, the covenant of God, covenantal faithfulness. A man is to be committed to be faithful to his wife. Now, I'm going to show you one place in the New Testament that picks up on this creative design related to these issues. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 8, it says this, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Meaning the helper, the complement. Verse 11 continues, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man... So man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Now, that language there is pointing out the creative design of God and the way this complementary relationship works. Now, think with me for a moment about the work of dominion. The work of dominion is that they were to look out in the world and see all that God has created, and they are to rule over that to the glory of God. Well, if they're going to do that, that's going to take more than them. They come together, they commit to partner in covenant faithfulness to that. They come together in marriage, they are one flesh, they have sexual relations, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a moment. They have children, those children grow up, they find a compliment, a man and a woman, and commit to covenant faithfulness. They begin to fill the earth, and they begin to take dominion on the earth. But my point is that that all begins with marriage, one man to one woman. That's the beginning place of dominion. If if there would have never been a man commit to a woman, dominion could not have been exercised in the world. Wouldn't have been possible. So God's design is gendered image bearers, marriage to happen in the context of 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 committing to live in covenant faithfulness to get together and to obey and honor and worship God. And the complementary pairs, the crowning pair of that is man and woman, husband and wife. And we chase that out in the rest of our Bibles and we see that Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a picture of the more important relationship between Christ and the church. The church is called the bride of Christ and Christ is the groom. Marriage pictures that, not the other way around. And we see that God's purpose 
is at stake in God's intent with all of this. Now, now this is God's foundational, fundamental design. To reject it is to reject that God defines the world that He created. That's what's at stake. So somebody who's confused about gendered identity has all kinds of problems that have to be worked out, and all kinds of barriers in their understanding of who God is and what He's done and their ability to bow before Him. They're creating these further barriers. To the degree that marriage is defined as something that it is not, the confusion also increases. So, a main reason that we must be committed to contending and telling the truth about these things is not... So we don't have to see things in the culture we don't like. It's because we love our neighbor. We want people in right relationship with God. And if we ignore these foundational things, we're harming somebody's ability to even understand who God is. It's not about us. It's not about our political power. It's not about us being on the right side of the issues. It's not about us being the cultural power brokers. It's because this is who God is and what God has done. Nobody's life is helped by rejecting their gendered identity. Nobody's life is helped by embracing a definition for marriage that is not marriage. Marriage is only... Two gendered image bearers, male and female, committing to one another in covenant faithfulness. That is marriage. Period. Nothing else is. But that leads to the next thing, and that is dominion is carried forward by the gift of children. We've already alluded to it. For there to be dominion in the world, start out with gendered image bearers who commit to one another, who know one another, who obey the command of God that we're going to see right here. Children are produced, then they marry, and then they marry, and then that goes on, and uh, the world is, the earth is filled with those, hopefully, to do service to God. Notice as verse 28 continues in Genesis 1, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion, Then he goes on again, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good." And there was the evening, and there was the morning, the sixth day. Now, the account in Genesis 1 of the creation order ends with man, and the account of 
the more detailed explanation of the creation, especially as it relates to man, chapter 2 begins with man, the crowning apex of God's created order, gendered image bearers. But notice what it said at the very beginning. There are uh, five commands, five imperatives here. One is be fruitful, multiply. Third is fill the earth. Fourth is subdue it. And fifth is have dominion over everything to the glory of God. Be fruitful and multiply. This is what it is alluding to when it says over in verse chapter 2, verse 24, the two shall become one flesh. It's talking about the reality that the complementary relationship of gendered image bearers who commit to one another in marriage is reflected in the act of sexual intercourse in covenant faithfulness of marriage. And that is the means that God has designed to produce Children, be fruitful and multiply. Children are the gift of God. Always in the Bible, children are considered a blessing. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. These are all imperatives. Sexual intercourse is for more than procreation. It is an ex, it is, it is a, a way in which we dis- demonstrate and visually demonstrate covenant faithfulness and we enjoy the intimacy of companionship, but it is not less than that. A fundamental reason why God has given us the blessing of Becoming one flesh in that way is because that's the way God has designed to produce children. Now, it's very interesting that the first direct word from God to man is in verse 28, and it is a blessing, and it is the blessing to be fruitful and multiply. God's first direct word to His created image bearers is to do so. In uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, it alludes to God's design in this way, and it says this, Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? That is, their marital union, the two becoming one flesh. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Malachi 2.15 What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. What is that? That is the filling of the earth. You see, within the context of the marriage relationship, two become one flesh and there's a sense in which they are rightly naked and not ashamed. Now, that is corrupted by the fall into sin, and yet it's reclaimed in terms of uh, redemption and covenant marriage and faithfulness. So children are a blessing from God according to the design of God. Now, what I want to do is just encourage you to think about what's going on here. 
Chapter 3, we have the fall into sin. Now, if you're going to oppose God in the world, and you're going to attack the apex of His created order, His image bearers, what are you going to attack? How are you going to confuse humanity? Gendered identity? Marriage? Children? See, the attacks on those things goes all the way back to the beginning. It's inevitable with the fall into sin that the attacks of the evil one and humanity and rebellion against God are going to attack those things. So a very primary tool of Satan is to confuse about gendered identity. It doesn't matter. It's no big deal. It's whatever you think it is. That should not surprise us. It's the first thing that God says about the crowning apex of his creative design. Satan assaults it. Has God really said? Secondly, marriage. It's all the sense in the world if dominion is carried out through uh, initially through marriage and the earth is filled through marriage that leads to children, attack marriage, confuse about marriage, redefine marriage. And if it's about children, there's always been the raging against the promise because not only do we have children as a blessing, the answer to the fall into sin was the promise of the birth of a child. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You will attack him. He will seem to be wounded, but ultimately he'll be victorious. And the seed born of woman will crush the head of the serpent. The one who does that, 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us, is the one who, seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Colossians 1.15 tells us he's the image of the invisible God. So how is the image of God reclaimed in the world? Through the redemption brought about by the birth of the child who crushes the head of the serpent. And God's at the work in the world reclaiming his image bearers. So we look to him. But understand this, if fundamental to the design of God was children are a blessing, if the way the fall is going to be reversed is through the birth of a child, Satan rages against children and babies, including babies in the womb. It should not surprise us that these are the issues. It should not surprise us at all. It's just a matter of a voice with a hiss once again saying, did God really say? But here's what I want to push you on tonight. These these are real problems. And these are real issues that destroy people's lives. And we must care about them. And it's not just enough that we have the right positions on these issues within the walls and confines of this building. We must go out to people who are mired in these kinds of relationships, and we must speak the truth. Because what's at stake here is not something we can push off into a corner as an isolated issue. It is an assault on the very character of God, the name of God, the Word of God, and the world that God made. 
and it goes from the beginning to the end and everything in between. This is the warp and woof of Scripture that's challenged by confusion in these three fundamental areas related to His image bearers. And we do not do anyone any good by capitulating on the truth of that. In fact, few things could be more cruel than saying, because it might cost me something, I will lie to you and allow you to be on a destructive path in your own life. Because I don't have the courage to face the consequences, I will allow you to destroy yourself. We must not capitulate on these issues. We must speak the truth. We must never compromise. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says, and it doesn't matter what the magistrates say. We must never capitulate on these issues because we love God and we love our neighbor. But secondly, We must not act as though the people who struggle with these issues are dealing with issues that we do not have the answer to. For that is a lie as well. The transgendered person is not somebody you avoid. It's somebody you tell about Jesus. The same-sex couple is not somebody you avoid and act as though they are too far gone for the gospel. It's somebody you meet at the point of the gospel and you tell them the truth and the truth about uh, the issues related to the confusion about sexuality, but the truth about Jesus. Because most people mired in these sins are simply looking for satisfaction, contentment, and community, and they're looking in the wrong places. And none of them are beyond the power of the Gospel to transform their lives. And we must not ever act intimidated by certain sins and act as if those sins are beyond the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We're studying the book of Romans. If there was anybody at that time that people would say, now that person could never be a Christian, it's Paul. He's overseeing the execution of Christians. But Romans 8 is probably the high point in the entire Bible of communicating the glory of the Gospel. Do you see the ditches on both sides of the road? The one is let's just fit in and stop speaking the truth on these issues. But the other is just as bad. The other is the people who struggle with these issues are just those people that we don't have anything to do with, and all we want to do is defeat them in the culture battles. No, we want to look at them and say, brother, sister, 
We want them in the family. And they don't get there apart from the Gospel. So we take the Gospel to them. And you say, well, it'll make me really uncomfortable. So what? So what? What could be more more irrelevant than whether it makes you uncomfortable or not? Jesus is Lord. Your comfort is not Lord. We ought to have the people in this community who struggle with these issues know that we're not intimidated to go to them and know that we're committed to telling them the truth and to loving them by proclaiming the gospel no matter what, no matter how they respond to us. When we put the crosses up, when we were uh, during the anniversary of Roe v. Wade and we were calling people to turn away from the widespread slaughter of children through abortion, uh, not everybody responded to that well. But you know what? Those conversations through that actually opened the door for me to be able to interact with some people. Uh, And some of those people were slam the phone down and never talk to you. And, but, but there are a couple. A couple where the conversation has continued. Our willingness to speak the truth and they're lashing out at us and our willingness to reach back with saying, hey, let's talk about it has opened doors for that. That's the ground that we've got to stand on. Never compromise. And never compromise the power of the Gospel either. Same-sex marriage, sin. Homosexuality, lesbianism, sin. Transgenderism, sin. Answer to them, gospel. As Paul says in his letter to the church at Corinth, homosexuals will not enter the kingdom of God, meaning practicing homosexuals unrepentant. And then he says, but such were some of you. If we can't say that, It's not because they can't be saved. It's because we're not taking the Gospel to them. And may we repent even as we call others to repent. Let's pray.